0: This is the second of a two-part series with poet and Cambridge professor, Dr. Malcolm Geit. If you've not yet listened to part one, we encourage you to go to our previous episode as it sets the stage for today's conversation.
1: Dr. Geit describes imagination as the bridge between the world known and the world unknown. In part two of our interview, he offers innovative thoughts on current educational models and how they hinder or help our capacity for imagination. So, Rachel, we are going to jump right back into our interview with poet, priest, and Professor Dr. Geit.
0: And musician. Yes, that's uh, right. Yeah, because we used Malcolm's music throughout both of his episodes. We sure did.
1: And when we left off, you and he were just starting to talk about education.
0: Yeah, not only education for children, which is very important, mm-hmm. but for us as adults, too. He had some very illuminating perspectives on how yeah. meaningful engagement and conversations with our children can assure us to live in the present and to exercise our creative imagination hmm.
1: he calls it rehumanizing mm-hmm. when we attend to our children like that yeah. which i thought was uh, quite interesting
0: it was
1: so here we go back into our conversation with dr malcolm geit
0: welcome to family 360
2: Some people say you shouldn't tell children fairy stories because they shouldn't be frightened by monsters and giants. But to hear stories in which a young, naive new knight is threatened by dragons and somehow, in spite of it all, manages to defeat them, that actually lays down a pattern in your mind. The story of the slaying of the dragon, the story of the overcoming of the dragon, is the story that the child needs to hear to make a connected thread of all the episodes of their own life and to feel that they might be in a story. And therefore, when they come to a difficult episode in that story, to think that there might nevertheless be a happy ending.
0: I'm Rachel Cram. And
1: I'm Roy Salmon. And welcome to Family 360.
0: Conversations exploring life together.
1: We are picking up this conversation in the last minute of part one, as Dr. Geit describes the necessity of imagination to apprehend in advance our understanding of life. So, we have a an idea of
2: what the world is like, and we think that's the total reality, and it never is. So the classic example was when everybody quite understandably thought that the earth was the center of the cosmos and that the sun went round the earth. And nobody could imagine or guess anything else until you get Copernicus saying, just imagine for a minute, if the sun was the center, there was a massive act of imagination, and suddenly all this stuff that didn't quite fit the old model made total sense. So a leap of the imagination actually changed a model of knowing and gave us new insights. And that's happened again, you know, with Einstein. Um, and it's going to happen again. Do you know what I mean? The models mm-hmm. we've got now mm-hmm. are temporary.
0: Well, which really brings into question the way we've constructed our educational systems, yeah, where I believe yeah. we really want to, hope to, make space for wonder and imagination. But instead, sometimes I think, I think we get distracted by other pursuits.
2: Absolutely. When kids are at school, they tend to be taught towards an examination in a fairly formulate way. If you write an essay on Hamlet, you've got to say the following five things. you're not going to get the marks Mm -hmm. and you're kind of more or less given a a kind of kit to write the essay (laughs) but there's no original thought involved there now going back to cambridge i've said all the difficult things about competition but one of the fantastic things about cambridge is the first thing we say when we're teaching english is forget the kit just expose yourself afresh to the text let the text talk to you and then you're saying to that student i want to know your opinion i genuinely do you're well, I think give me often students insights. have a really
0: hard time believing that somebody like a professor at Cambridge yeah. genuinely wants to know. No, I opinion. mean because you learn. Do you genuinely? I do want genuinely to know?
2: want to know because partly because I think the way, say, a play like Hamlet works is that it's got so much wisdom in it, much more than Shakespeare himself could have consciously known. That Hamlet will become a new play and have genuine new insights every time it's read in another generation. So I'll give you an example. There's a very strong feeling quite understandably and, in fact, entirely correctly on the part of the rising generation, you know, if you think about Greta Thunberg, that the adults, you know, my generation, are screwing up the world and not paying attention to the essential realities and that we're trashing the world and they're going to have to fix it if they even survive in it.
0: Mm.
2: So I heard a brilliant exposition of Hamlet in which they pointed out
0: from that, one of your students you from heard From one this. of my students. Mm.
2: <laughs> in which they pointed out that if you think about Hamlet in terms of two generations, the old generation, you know, Claudius and Gertrude and Polonius, are all entirely corrupt. They're self-indulgent and they're destroying the state. And it's the younger generation who see that there is something rotten in the state of Denmark and are trying to do something about it. They're actually protesting. And in fact, all the young people at the beginning of the play in the court are trying to leave it because they can see how awful it is. Now, I hadn't thought about Hamlet in generational Mm. terms at all, Mm. but this person didn't just give an opinion, they showed in the essay, in scene after scene, how that actually works. Mm. Now, that's an insight that they brought to the table because of their circumstance right now and the way the world is. And that's part of the genius of Hamlet as a play, is that it's so full of truth to life that it's adequate to each new generation. Mm -hmm. So that kind of thing is really exciting. If I was teaching, you know, in a high school where they just have to say the following five things that everybody knows about Hamlet, we'd have never had that conversation. Mm
0: -hmm. So you're talking about these academic kits that don't engage the imagination. Mm -hmm. I wonder, If we use kits because we don't trust the imagination to serve as that bridge that you talked about between the known and the unknown. Yeah,
2: yeah. Do you
0: think that everybody has an imagination?
2: Oh, totally, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would say one of the most important ideas, I think it's a radical revolutionary idea, uh, is the idea that each human being is made in the image of God. That God takes something and makes it a beautiful, independent thing that can move by itself. And that, if you like, is what a work of imagination is. So actually, I think we are works of imagination, God's imagination. And therefore, every single human being has a creative imagination. And one of the things that makes me concerned about issues of social justice is that to exercise your imagination well requires a little bit of leisure, a little bit of free space, a little bit of time to draw in the dirt or model the pot or whatever. And um, we've created a society in which some people have to work so hard that they have no leisure at all. And we've also changed the nature of the work. There was a time when everybody who was just an ordinary labourer was actually carving their own stuff or growing their own food. And there were creative elements to the poorest ordinary human work. But now, because of industrialisation, we've created modes of work, low paid modes of work, which have no creative element in them whatsoever. So we've simultaneously deprived people of the leisure to exercise their creativity and of the possibility of exercising their creativity at work. Now I think starving and repressing a person's imagination is just as bad as starving and repressing their body, possibly worse.
0: And do you think that's what's happening in our culture right now?
2: I think it is to some degree. And I think it's not just true actually for the low paid. I think there are lots of people in quite high paid jobs whose actual work is essentially dehumanizing. And thanks to the iPhones and emails and everything, they don't even leave work at work, they bring it home. So the very time when, let's say, their children might be rehumanizing them and teaching them to live in the present and inviting their parents to exercise the creative imagination by telling their children a story, the wretched parent is answering an email because they're afraid that if they don't answer this email now, they won't get promotional, they'll lose their job. So I think there's a real oppression going Mm. on, actually, at at all levels there. Mm. I sometimes think one of the most beneficent things that could happen to the world would be a six-month total electrical blackout and power cut, in which just everything is powered down and we rediscover each other. Mm. Then when the power went up again, we might have just a slightly more sane way of using all this
0: stuff. Mm. That would definitely shake things up. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I wonder... It's good to question our leisure and our desires, I think. Absolutely, yeah. It's so easy to lose our way between what we want and what we actually pursue. We get off track, we don't notice we're heading in a completely unintended direction sometimes, I think.
2: Yeah. There's a great phrase of uh, St. Augustine's where he said, God may not always give us the desire of our hearts, but he will give us the heart of our desires. And when I say I want something... It's really worth questioning, what is it I want? So if somebody says, I want a good job, is that the end in itself? Or are they saying, well, no, what I want is to be accepted as a successful appears, or what I want is enough income to be able to take care of my family. So then you say, actually, so what you want to do is to take care of your family. The good job and the income are a means to taking care of your family. Now, as soon as you know that, then you can make some very practical decisions. So if the good job happens to be a job which has such demanding hours that you will destroy your family, then it's no longer a good job. But if you, and that
0: can sneak up on you so easily. Even,
2: even though it's in fact labelled a good job, you yeah. know, and everybody says, well, wow, you've got the chief executive post there, but there's absolutely no point in having it if the purpose of it was to do something which the job itself destroys. Mm. So this thing of questioning your desires, mm. you know, some Christian mystics and certainly all Buddhists would say, keep questioning. Mm. And everything you think you ever wanted turns out to be wanting something more and you know, there's something more maybe already here and ready to unfold, the Buddhist would say, or there's something more, maybe a thing that only God can give you, you know. So actually you may be chasing completely vain and wandering desires and be in a state of constant frustration.
0: That's such a struggle. Yeah. I think often not something we realize until the second half of our life. Mm. I think our parents, our grandparents can tell you that's what's to come, but you just don't get it yeah, when no you're younger. Either. You don't believe it's going to be true. Uh, there's, yeah. there's a quote, I think it's um, Thomas Merton, who says, you can spend your whole life trying to climb the ladder of success only to get to the top and realize you've got the ladder against the wrong wall.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why it's fantastic. I mean, the U2 song, I still haven't found what I'm looking mm.
0: for,
2: is so honest and so superb. You know, yeah. it's just
0: kind of, you know, a great song. Yeah. Malcolm, can we circle back to your comments about questioning what it is we really want versus chasing in vain? Because yeah, I sure. think this topic is a huge one. Like, yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah. When
0: a parent drops their child off at school, even, yeah. what's the message that, you, that you'd recommend that they be giving to their child? What, what's the question that a parent wants to lead a child to be asking? What gets them on the path that lets them attend to the present and get all they can out of those years?
2: Uh, I mean, I'm not sure that you can do that all in one question on the first day. No. But I think, <laughs> no? you, I mean, I would certainly want to say, in fact, I probably did say, my daughter was enjoy every minute. Mm. Just in, this is a wonderful thing in itself. Mm. So I'll tell you the thing I do say to my students when I'm teaching them how to write. I have to show them how to pass the exams. I have to give them some idea of the kind of writing that's involved. And one of the things I say to them is, I said, you know how it is when you visit a place with beautiful buildings and there's certain things you're really hoping to see, but unfortunately they're all covered in scaffolding. And the scaffolding sort of obscures the view and you're really annoyed. And you think, well, I'll come back someday when the scaffolding's not there and I'll really enjoy this building. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: As far as I'm concerned, the entire process of assessment and examination is just ugly scaffolding necessary scaffolding but ugly scaffolding around the great edifice and cathedral of literature and i said i have to teach you how to climb the scaffolding and pass the (laughs) exam but my main concern is that you should actually enter the building and take possession of it and that you should come years after this with no thought of any honor or reward and with not the least shadow of an exam crossing your path that you should remember Hamlet and remember Milton's Paradise Lost and remember these beautiful tales of Chaucer and think when you're waiting for a bus or you come home and nobody else is at home and you pull a book off the shelf and that you should wander into these books you read and enjoy them for their own sake. Mm
0: -hmm. I love what you're saying there and I'm thinking as a a parent it, it requires a deeper kind of question. A different view to supporting your child's educational journey, right. because I think the easy question can be, "How did you do on your exam?" Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, how, what did you get on that essay? Yeah, 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 exactly. You, you no, know, no, I think, a, and it requires a much deeper understanding of your child, even. Yeah, no, to be able to ask enjoy? those type of questions, this, and I think
2: that what did you enjoy a, what, is a really good, question. it's a yeah. really good question, a really important question, and.
0: Um, can you give a few other questions like that? Yeah, I, I,
2: I, yeah. I think
0: sometimes we just need some, some yeah. watching questions. What did you enjoy? So what did you enjoy? What did you
2: discover? Tell me what surprised you mm, yeah. in your subject. That is sometimes really quite an interesting thing. The other thing, of course, that always happens in university, but it certainly should happen if the university is doing its job, is that all the treasured assumptions about what the world is like and how it works, including their own faith, are suddenly open to radical question.
0: And that can be alarming to parents. That can be
2: alarming to parents and actually quite alarming to children. Mm. So so I think that one of the things that university teaches you to do is first of all to question your assumptions Mm. and then to realize that questioning your assumptions is not necessarily as scary or chaotic as you think it's going to be that sometimes you question your assumptions, you realize they're solid, and you believe in, you know, they're much stronger afterwards. Sometimes you question your assumptions, you realize they're false, and you make progress as a result of that. You begin to see the world in a new way.
0: Well, do you ever stop um, questioning your Well, no, Exactly. That's, yeah. a, you know
2: those kind of questions well and it isn't
0: even not just faith like yeah. i love the example you uh, gave uh, before about the discovery of how the how the planets, the, the planets and, move beyond, yeah. i mean it's, it's really with everything isn't yeah, it that you exactly. have to question is the world flat yeah, should exactly, women have should, a voice yeah, yeah, are, are, exactly. are, are, are are all skin yeah. colors of equal yeah exactly like, these are questions
2: I have to asked. and the the very capacity to ask the question is itself a gift and uh, you know and therefore you should treasure it mm. and of course if you treasure something You take it out of the treasure box and you turn it over and if it's a ring, you wear it and you look at it and you get to know all its facets. So to treasure a question is not to rush immediately to its answer, but to let the question dwell in you as a question and keep asking itself. And obviously, Copernicus did that with certain questions as a result Mm -hmm. of which changed the view of the universe, the view of the world that we had. It's a very
0: different way to do education, through the power of questioning.
2: It is, yeah. But it ought to be. I mean, in terms of foundation of education, the greatest example of the power of the question is in the dialogues of Plato, where Socrates, you know the famous story that um, somebody went to the oracle at Delphos and said, who is the wisest man in Athens? And the, the oracle at Delphos said, Socrates. Now Socrates was a stonemason. Was you know he was a working chap, but he had very good conversations with students who wanted to know more from him. And so somebody came back and said, "You know, you're the wisest man in Athens." And, and Socrates said, "Well, that can't possibly be the case. I mean, I'm you know I I know nothing. That's why I'm always asking questions. So I'm afraid I can't just take this at face value. I'm going to have to question this verdict. So I'm going to go." So he says, "Well, I think I'll I'll um." Obviously, the people who rule Athens, you know, the actual politicians, anybody that sets out and deliberately puts themselves forward to be in charge of something must be aware that they're wiser than others, because it would be folly for anybody not wise to try and guide people wiser than themselves. So I'll go and ask a series of questions about truth and wisdom of the politicians, which he does. And of course, he realizes they're completely foolish and self-contradictory. So he writes, oh, gosh, well... They're not very wise after all. And then he goes and asks the poets. And then he discovers that when you talk to the poets individually, they don't know any more than you do about what's really going on in their poem. And then gradually he goes through all the classes of society and he realizes that everything that appeared to be knowledge turns out to be disguised ignorance. Mm. So he's really confused. And then it suddenly dawns, oh, I get it now. I'm the only man in Athens who admits that he's ignorant. Mm. We're all ignorant. But I'm the person who says, I'm ignorant, I need to ask questions, and the only reason why I've been called wise by the Oracle at Delphos is because I'm the one person who recognizes there's a limit to his knowledge and wants to ask the next question. Mm -hmm. So then, Socrates' technique is constantly to ask questions about what we think we know in order to advance knowledge, and of course, in the end, that gets him into trouble and he's arrested and executed for corrupting youth because (laughs) he encourages young people to ask questions. Mm -hmm. But that's actually the foundation of Western philosophy is precisely Socrates asking questions.
0: Because this is going to go off on a little bit of a tangent, and I don't know if you'll be able to jump onto this or not, but I'm going to go for it with you. One of the quotes that led us into doing this podcast was one by Mahatma Gandhi, where he says, if we want to reach peace in the world, we must begin with the children. And I think that speaks a little bit to what you're talking about right now, that yeah. we're not living out the foundational Truths that Western mm. society is built upon. It's not about asking questions anymore. It's not about listening. But mm. right, right now, there's so much speech that's vitriolic. There's so much speech yeah. that is imbued with certainty. Yeah, and it doesn't get us anywhere healthy. Mm. Can you? Can we teach people to be inquisitive, to be imaginative? Can we? Mm. How do we nurture? Yeah, people?
2: well, uh, nurture is pretty better than teach there because. Yeah. I think the fact of the matter is that children start off as both imaginative and inquisitive mm-hmm. they in do. spades. Yes. So much so that we've hardly got time to answer all their questions. Exactly. So the question is not whether we can teach them, I would say, but as I said before, whether they can teach us. I like So that. the real question, I mean, obviously that... Imaginativeness and inquisitiveness has to be channeled to some degree, and kids have to learn how to brush their teeth and put their clothes on the right way around, and even if it be imaginatively more interesting. Not but I think
0: we think there's a lot more hafties yeah. than there really yeah. is.
2: Yeah, there are some. There's a modest number of hafties which we have to learn to do, mm-hmm. but that must be kept to a minimum, mm-hmm. and by contrast, we must compensate for that by invitations to imagination. And in terms of the, the imaginative child, I mean, I think the great key to that is story and play. So telling a child a story and then stopping by when asking the child how they think the story would go on, or reading stories that the children love, and then saying, let's make up one of our own in the same world, you know. My father read to me The, the Hobbit, for example, when I was really quite young. And um, it was really interesting because he really enjoyed doing it and he had different voices for all the different characters so he just in the very act of reading showed that he was imaginatively engaged in it and you know he was a busy man and he always took the time in the evening but our bedtime we had a very clear routine and our bedtime routine included you know we would eat earlier actually before dad got home and got ready for bed and then when dad came home i think before he had his supper he would come through and read to us He'd say, well, that's it at the end of the chapter. And we'd be saying, oh, just one more chapter, Dad. You know, and he'd sometimes stay on and read another one, you know, as a special treat.
0: Now, uh, you also uh, mentioned play. Yeah. You gave a great example of story, which makes me want to run home and read to my kids more. So thank you so much for that. That's cool. But you also said that play is a key to imagination. Can you say more about that? Yeah. There's so much that we're discovering about play.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So my father read, but my mother would tell me, stories about King Arthur and Lancelot and Guinevere and Galahad and I would ask more questions It was great and she would answer spontaneously and tell me more or tell me another story And after my mother had told me those stories my mother made a, a, a shield for me which she covered in embroidered cloth and um, Somebody carved a sword for me a wooden sword and I would go around Sort of imagining myself on a horse and play out in my mind all the stories And like be the different parts and then my sister didn't always want to do this but if i could get my sister to kind of engage in it we would act out those things which we'd heard and make up new adventures
0: and what does that do for your mind what does that do for the mind of a child to have that kind of fantasy play I, i i
2: i wouldn't want to answer that as a direct question if i answer what does it do for the mind that immediately makes it a utilitarian thing. Oh, good point. Like you're saying, like, what's the use of it? I mm. mean, how mm. do I use stories to make my kid more imaginative so they can be a success in life is the way Ooh, that I like might how you go. took that.
0: Okay. You know, I
2: didn't even... It's just fun. Like, it's play. And I just delighted in it because the stories are marvelous. Now, much longer term, I could say that... uh To hear stories in which a young naive new knight who hasn't won his spurs yet is apparently threatened by dragons or ogres or or wicked enchanters and somehow in spite of it all against all the odds manages to defeat them that actually lays down a pattern in your mind so gk chesterton said this he said some people say you shouldn't tell children fairy stories like the story of jack the giant killer because they shouldn't be frightened by monsters and giants and chesterton said doesn't take fairy stories Children already know about monsters and giants because they have to live with adults. It's not that they're not going to know about giants, but they may never hear that little Jack can defeat the giants.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: That actually the story of the slaying of the dragon, the story of the overcoming of the ogre, is the story that the child needs to hear. Hmm. that's the important thing so I do think that narrative and story helps a child to make a connected thread of all the episodes of their own life and to feel that they might be in a story and therefore when they come to a difficult episode in that story to think that there might nevertheless be a happy ending
0: I think the whole Harry Potter series is yeah. kind of a contemporary version of that. Oh, totally. Of watching a boy go through yeah, yeah. incredible Absolutely. difficulties without being saved by yeah, anybody. Yeah.
2: yeah, exactly so, exactly so. And one of the great things about Harry Potter is the discovery that he has resources within him that he didn't know he had and which can be released. There's a wonderful episode in the first one which speaks really well to children's sense of growing up of their own identity and who they are. There's a bit where where Harry Potter begins to wonder whether the Sorting Hat had put him wrong and whether he might really be in Slytherin, mm-hmm. and he feels that. But when he's having that comforting conversation with the headmaster, with Dumbledore, and he says, should yeah. I have been Slytherin? And, and, and Dumbledore says to him, you pulled from them the very thing you did shows you who you are and you know Harry mm-hmm. kind of grows into a sense of his own identity through reflecting on what he was surprisingly able to do and you know i think there's a huge amount of wisdom in that for
0: kids yeah. well we're so fortunate because there are so many excellent books for children and for young people yeah, now that really yeah. do address that capacity for resilience in the face of adversity yeah and i would love to talk to you about that more but I think we're kind of running out of time. Okay. I wonder, as we're about to close, is there a last thought you'd want to offer regarding how we can nurture, and I love how you picked up on that word, how we can nurture the imagination in ourselves and in our children? What would that be?
2: Well, I think the nurturing of imagination is something we receive from other people's imaginations. That to read a great story, you know, to read poetry or see art, to immerse yourself in, see a great film actually that has that sort of imaginative quality, that's not simply like a moment when you have quote unquote consumed something as though you've got it and then you discard it. All of that is laying down deep in your soul. Patterns and images with which to think, and in fact, you'll see that many of the great stories are actually people remembering much older stories and retelling them in different ways. We'd mentioned Harry Potter, but the story of the person who doesn't really realize who he is and is living with somebody who's not his parents and who has to discover in a strange way against everybody else who he really is well, that is actually straight out of the Arthurian legend. Mm -hmm. That pattern is a deep mythical pattern now that's not to say that jk rowling is in any way being kind of unoriginal but you can bet your bottom dollar that she knew and loved those stories Mm -hmm. as a kid and that they were deeply patterned in her so uh, one of our problems generally in our culture is that we privatize and individualize everything and we all see ourselves as isolated little individuals right and we think of, therefore, imagination as limited inside our skull and some kind of private possession that we then nurture as though it were sort of pot plant, you know, in, a, in some corner of our private apartment. But actually, imagination, the human imagination, is a big continuum. It flows in and out of our different minds. There is a collective power of myth-making, shaping and storytelling, a stream into which we're born or a tree of which we are a branch. <laughs> And we, we can't imagine privately, even when we've made up our yeah. own peculiar little story, yeah. we're actually taking and reshaping all the great stories that are out there and throwing them onto another generation. So to read everybody else, to hear stories from others, and to tell a story in response to a story, that's how human culture started. And, you know, we have to get back to doing that in some way.
0: Wow. What an amazing answer. Malcolm, thank you so much. I know that you are at the end of a very busy speaking tour and this conversation has gone much longer than we planned. But thank you so much for sharing in this way and for your time. There's so much more I would love to ask you, but my imagination has certainly been stirred by listening to you speak. And I thank you so much.
2: That's great. Thank you.
1: One of my favorite parts of every interview is when you ask our guests one last question to share a nugget of wisdom Mm -hmm. or some words that would be meaningful to our listeners. And it amazes me how they can spontaneously come up with
0: these great answers,
1: even after being interviewed for a significant time.
0: Yeah, which is totally the case with Malcolm as well. Mm. I I loved his closing remarks on the communal nature of imagination, that nothing is original to us. We're all Part of a bigger story.
1: And in light of that bigger story, we all just heard recently that Malcolm's mom, who he talked mm. about so appreciatively yeah. throughout this interview, had passed away.
0: Mm-hmm. At 101. Yeah. And she was still quoting poetry to her friends and family.
1: So, our condolences yeah. and our thanks to Malcolm.
0: And our deep thanks to his mom, Sheena Geit, for the legacy that she's left for others to weave into their own lives.
1: Mm. Thank you for listening to Family 360.
0: If you like what you're hearing, please
1: subscribe. Rate the show, leave a comment, and tell a friend. It's our custom to end each episode with music inspired by the words of our
0: guest. You've heard pieces of Malcolm's music throughout this interview, but we're going to end with a recorded version of Malcolm's poem, Pour Out the Wine.
1: Perhaps as a tribute to his mother.
0: And a sensitive reminder to live fully into the richness of the communal imagination.
1: Enjoy.
2: Pour out the wine. Pour out the wine for one last glass with me, and praise with me the rooted, fruitful vine. Raise up the glass. Give thanks for all you see. Pour out the wine. Sweeten my time whilst I can call it mine. The axe is laid already to the tree, and all we raise aloft must soon decline. So now, whilst hands can touch and eyes can see, raise up the glass and let your glance meet mine. And when I'm gone, do this one thing for me.
1: Pour out the wine.
0: I'm Rachel Cram.
1: I'm Roy Salmond. And thank you so much for listening to Family 360. 360.
0: To continue these conversations, find us at Family 360 on our website, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.
1: We'd love to journey with you.